Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope de Gamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Overcheen, I question your judgment. Let's start with the vampires. That's a well that's been dredged dry, you monster. It's just bargain bin YA with a bad paint job. You know, when you're aspiring to the stunning originality of Joel Schumacher, it's over. And the mermaids. Do you know how overplayed mermaids are? The moment Ariel failed to turn into seafoam and die, the mythos stopped being relevant. All story worlds are valid. When we remove the tolls on the narrative highway, all troops will be in again. Oh, here it comes, the grand unified story theory. Don't be such a classicist, a gramophone. You can't see what I see. The machine is nothing but story. There is no cycle of trope renewal. No cognitive hermeneutics of the weird. The story must flow. That's it. Let's get it on. Fight. Intentionality. Patriarchal. Doppelganger. Matriarchal. Fluid non-conforming orcal. Polonian. Dionysian. Euclidean. Phenomenological. Epistemological. Ontological. Platonically exclusionary intersectionality. The Right to Bear Arms by Zach Z.Y.Z. Part 2 It rained the day of my last treatment, big, cold, freezing drops, but I was at the office ten minutes early, 
It could have been raining molten lead and I would have come. I was so excited I could barely sit still while Sam went over the checks. I'd done all the exercises they asked me to, kept their strict diet, done everything right. Sam went through the tech checks and everything was nominal. The outlook for a successful reattachment was good. In addition to the normal checks, Sam also weighed me and took my measurements with an old-fashioned tape ruler. Chest, collar, waist, all that. It seemed a little odd, but I didn't question it. I was confident that they could do a far better job than the VA. Once he was done with the tape ruler, Sam put me under and removed the arm. I wasn't supposed to feel anything, but I could swear the stump burned like ice when I came to and the prosthesis was gone. I felt lopsided. I was keenly aware of the missing weight, the empty space where there should be an arm. Just until tomorrow, Sam reassured me. It felt stupid to be upset over a prosthetic arm that didn't even work, but it was hard to see him take it off and put it on the table. Part of me wanted to shout for him to give it back. Afterward, Dr. Ludo called me into his office and congratulated me on following the regimen exactly. He looked haggard, his eyes were dark, and one of the buttons on his shirt was undone. He followed my eyes to it and buttoned it without a word. Okay, tomorrow's the big day, he said. You okay, Doc? I asked. It was a bit of a selfish question. This was the guy who was going to do incredibly precise surgery to reattach my arm in less than 24 hours, but I was worried about him too. It's the new polls, he said. I think he won't even have to fudge the votes. I think they'll re-elect him clean. Another term and another stupid war. Hundreds of thousands of young men and women. How can people be so stupid? We stood there in silence, and I was wondering how the hell that was even possible. So many lost, so little gained. We weren't liberators, we weren't even conquerors. We were just sending men and women to their deaths, throwing them into the mangler, and a few of us managed to crawl out in pieces. The only winners were the guys selling the guns and the bullets, making the bombs that blew us up and then selling us new legs and arms on credit. Everything was going to hell. No jobs, no hope, secret police and internment camps, emergency act after emergency act. Why didn't they just drop the bullshit and admit it? Raise the swastika, grow chaplain mustaches, and start goose-stepping, because the fascists were in control now, and anybody who didn't like it was going to disappear. Someone should do something, I said. I didn't know what needed to happen or who would do it. I was just full of a sudden anger I could barely contain. My left hand was curled into a fist. My right was gone. Anticipation hung in the air, both of us wanting to say it, neither of us daring. But what? Dr. Ludo asked. There was a quickening of interest in his eyes. Someone should kill him. I said the words as gravely as if I was announcing my own death, and maybe I was. If Dr. Ludo reported me to the police, I would disappear tonight. For a moment, the way that he looked at me, I had a paranoid flash that this had all been recorded. They would take what I'd said and use it in a show trial, and then they would have me publicly executed. But there was an iron look in his eyes that showed me I hadn't misjudged him. Do you want to stop them? Dr. Ludo asked, and suddenly he was as animated as if he'd been shot up with a cryosome antidote. Yes, I nearly shouted. There was no point in recanting. Would you die to stop them? Dr. Ludo asked, and his eyes were electric. I couldn't look away. I felt like the floor had dropped out from under me. It was in that moment that I realized I had been led to this. The conversations every day, the constant probing of my opinions, the free treatment, the weird drugs, the other patients referred away. They were terrorists. Dr. Ludo and Navajo Sam and maybe even Laren 
The whole office was a recruiting center. I talked a big talk, not realizing who was listening to me puff myself up. I, I, I began. I was about to say no. But what happened then? Would they let me leave this place now that I knew? They had my arm. What if they wouldn't give it back? What if they blackmailed me? Dr. Ludo said nothing. He just waited. I stood there for what seemed like an eternity, my mind going in a thousand directions at once. Yes, I said, and it was almost like someone else was saying it. Afterward, the justification started flooding in. It was the right thing to do. It would be a noble sacrifice. But I think what it really came down to was there was nothing else for me. I was tired, and I didn't want to go on like this. We'll talk tomorrow, he promised. Tomorrow was the day that I got my arm back. sleep. Too much on my mind. As soon as I managed to push something out, another thing sprang up to take its place. Again and again, Dr. Ludo was asking me if I would die to stop them, and I wondered just what the hell they had in mind. It was absolutely the longest, most desperate night of my life. Finally, I gave up all pretense of sleeping and went for a walk. It was the first really cold night of the season, and the wind bit right through my overcoat. The empty arm fluttered uselessly at my side. I walked around Harlem, and everywhere there were piles of blankets with steamy breath rising from them. My brothers in arms left on the street like garbage. That would be me, I realized, and no piano pipe dream was going to stop me from joining their ranks. What if I really could do something to stop this, to stop the next war? It wasn't even a choice. I had to do it. I managed a few hours of sleep on the strength of that resolution, and I went early to Dr. Ludo's office. As I walked up 59th Street, I saw Blanchard walking towards me, and curiously, he was wearing a full-dress uniform. He was clean-shaven, with his new eye and a haircut. I couldn't even believe how different he looked. He'd actually been a master sergeant now that I could see his rank. I gave him a quick raise of my head, and he nodded back at me and walked past me, with a knowing look on his face. Inside the office, I was surprised to see everyone was ready for me. Laren had a big beaming smile for me, and I blushed. People always come early for the reattachment, Sam smiled. I could see behind him that the tech room was all set up for the operation. I thought I would be waiting outside the office for them to open, and I was relieved I wouldn't have to. The anticipation was killing me. Dr. Ludo came in and held out a hand, which I shook. After this... I'm going to shake your other hand, he announced confidently, and I smiled. Did you think about what we talked about, he asked, and there was no pretense now. Both he and Sam were looking at me eagerly. I'll do it, I said, trying to sound surer than I felt. If I could save even one other person from going through what I had to go through, it would be worth it. To be able to save thousands, I had to do it, no matter how afraid I was. Thank you. For all of us, thank you. 
You are a hero, Dr. Ludo said, and his eyes were wet. Since I'd come back, it seemed like every other person I'd met had thrown the word hero at me, and I hated it. There was nothing heroic about getting blown up. But when Dr. Ludo looked at me like that and said it, it meant something. I had to fight not to cry. There's something special about this arm, Sam said, holding up my arm. It still seemed weird to have it not attached to me. He tapped a particular spot inside the crook of the arm. Shave and a haircut. Two bits. Suddenly, there was a slight hum in the air, and Dr. Ludo and Sam were looking at the arm very intently. The batteries are overcharged, so be careful, because if you activate that, and you squeeze something with the hand as hard as you can, there's a strong chance that the batteries will explode. It would probably instantly kill you and the person standing next to you, shaking your hand, for instance. He tapped the arm four times and the humming stopped suddenly. That should keep it from happening. It's quite safe otherwise. I was reeling. I'd begun to sweat. It's completely undetectable. Now you do it, Sam said, extending my arm. I repeated the action, arming and disarming my arm. We won't make you do this if you don't want to. I can deactivate that circuit, reattach the arm, and at the end of the day we can let you walk out of here. After today, you'll never see any of us again. You can't possibly inform on us. I want to do it. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't want to. I mean, I'm not crazy. But it needs to be done. He has to be stopped. Thank you, Laren said. Thank you, Dr. Ludo and Sam echoed. They gave me the cryosome, and I was deep in space, feeling time running through me like a slow, endless river. When I came back up, Dr. Ludo was the first to shake my hand. It felt perfect. It felt very strange to be wearing my dress uniform again, blue and crisp as if it had been made yesterday, because it had. They had all my commendations pinned to it, all the bars over my left breast. Bars that said I was good, called me brave, said I could be relied upon to shoot who I was told to. A purple bar that I'd exchanged two arms for. Just a lot of colorful thread to say I'd made some bad decisions in my life when all was said and done. Even though I hadn't felt like a soldier in half a year, putting on the uniform did something to me. I was standing taller. People were turning to look at me as I walked by. Women turned their heads, and the men on the sidewalk with their cardboard signs and jingling cups looked away. I didn't know if they didn't want to see me or if they didn't want to be seen. They didn't know what I was, didn't have any idea. The leather gloves hid my plastic hands, and the brim of my cap hid the deadly secret that I carried. I looked like just another captain to those who could read my insignia. I only had about an hour until I needed to be at the train. I'd left directly from Dr. Ludo's office with my instructions. There wasn't time to return home and test out the hand. I knew I shouldn't dawdle, but there was a detour I had to make. 
I walk down Avenue of the Americas, and everything seems so important all of a sudden. A pigeon tutting past me, pecking at a crust of pizza. A group of young women gasping and crying out with delight when they recognized a friend. An old man with a cane, scraping forward with his foot turned sideways, all of it burning into me, because it was the last time. All the beautiful people hustling by with all the time in the world. Tonight my time would be up. I had to drink it all in as fast as I could. The honking horns, the hissing steam, the murmur of ten thousand voices. It was all so strange and wonderful. I couldn't understand how I'd ever gotten used to it all. I made it to Steinway Hall, and I had a silent moment of relief to see that they were open. I hoped this would work. A young woman, as polished and sleek as the pianos that she sold, greeted me with a brilliant white smile. I told her I was interested in purchasing a Model D, and I wondered if I could have a few moments to try it out. I was afraid for a moment that they would refuse. She only had to see the captain's bars on my labels to know that I could never afford a piano like this. In truth, I probably didn't even deserve to play on a concert piano, even for a few minutes. Obviously, I hadn't been able to practice for some time. But she smiled and led me back to an old salesman with a mane of gray hair tucked back into a ponytail in an elegant black suit that gave my dress blues a run for the money. His eyes flitted to my insignia, and for a moment I could see the flame of hope die in his eyes. He knew. Just taking her for a run, huh? Feel free, Captain. He led me back into one of the showrooms, and there she was, a spotless mountain of piano black, the golden Steinway and Sons logo gleaming underneath her fall. I walked around her, just taking in the sight and the smell of the piano, before I even dared to sit at the bench. I removed my gloves, and the salesman's eyebrows raised. For a moment, it seemed like he was about to say something. Perhaps he was worried that the prosthetic hands would damage the keys of the beauty, but he held his tongue. He closed the soundproof door, and I struck C, listening to the note ring in the room so pure and perfect. I shut my eyes, and there was nothing but the note. I had hoped they would leave me alone, but the salesman was in the room watching me, I guess to make sure I wasn't some nut who planned to smash the instrument. I was a little nervous since it had been so long, and I played a couple of sinful pieces to warm up, Minuet and Soldier's March. The salesman was glancing back at the door to make sure that nobody with money had suddenly appeared. He was bored. My new hand worked perfectly. With two hands that functioned, I could really take advantage of the prosthetics, and they absolutely flew as fast as I could think. I could feel the keys beneath my fingers as flawless as diamonds. I grinned a little, thinking perhaps I could blow this old man's mind. He probably thought I was just some shell-shocked cripple come to peck away at his expensive piano. He turned his head as I began to play Sonata Number no. 8 in C minor. He was jolted alert by the crash of the keys and the first notes of the movement, and then I forgot about him. For twenty minutes, there was only me and the piano and pathétique. When I was through, I had to wipe my eyes with my sleeve, even though I'd made perhaps six serious mistakes. The piano was everything I dreamed of and more, and the hams performed perfectly. What an incredible gift Sam and Dr. Ludo had given me. And how brief the time to enjoy it. After six months of suffering through the undependable prosthetic, I truly felt whole again. I was filled with the sudden desire not to go through with the plan. There were so many more things I wanted to do. Well then, do I have a sale? She'll be in good hands, the salesman grinned, and I flashed a suspicion that he was making fun of my prosthetics, but there was no malice in his expression. 
I felt a little foolish for trying to impress him when I was so out of practice. I mean, surely world-class pianists must come in here all the time. I was just a patzer who hadn't played in half a year. I could never afford this piano. Next time, I said ruefully, What a wonderful piano. Thank you very much. He nodded and showed me to the door, and I hastened towards my doom. Had time really seemed so endless just yesterday? The bullet train from New York to D.C. was just one long sigh, and I stared out the window the whole time like a child, trying to capture everything to live completely in the moment. Once I got to the station in D.C., it was all a rush, leaping into a taxi, zipping to the screening location, stepping out into the cold air, and suddenly terribly afraid I'd be found out. There was no way this could work, was there? Surely they would find the suicide circuit. They'd capture me and execute me. I'd be remembered forever as a traitor. I was standing at the door. I was on camera now, but I could still turn around and just leave. I didn't have to take this risk. I didn't have to spend myself this way. I'd just turned to walk away when another taxi arrived. Master Sergeant Blanchard and Captain Morley had arrived, both in their dress uniforms. For a moment, the three of us just looked at ourselves. I think none of us could believe we were dressed up and playing soldier again. I had a stupid thought that Blanchard ought to have saluted me, and I was glad he didn't. I was through with all that bullshit. The old master sergeant had a strange look in his eye. I noticed that the prosthetic eye didn't move. It just stared straight forward. Ready, sirs? Captain Morley asked, nodding towards the door. On the plucked scars at the size of his mouth, I thought I could see a faint smile. He was the one getting the medal, after all. The chance to flee was gone, but I still told myself I didn't have to go through with it. I didn't have to activate the bomb. If they didn't find me out, I could just sit through the ceremony and then escape afterward. Inside the screening room, all of us had to present our IDs at the security window. I noticed that Blanchard's was still brand new and shiny. There were two silent guards in the room by the booth, both armed with Steyr AUG-4 light machine guns. I must have spent a little too long looking at the gun, because the guard holding it gave me a look. I quickly looked away. Either guard could kill all three of us in about two seconds. Captain Morley identified us as his two guests for the ceremony, and the guard pointed us to a corridor for screening. He printed out a little plastic badge for each of us with our photos and the purpose and duration of our visit on them, and we wore them on lanyards. Don't forget to take those off and put them in your pocket before the ceremony, sirs, the guard said. He was very alert and upright. It was unusual to see that in a security guard, but I guess Morley was a hero after all, not something you saw every day. I had been nervous before, but I could barely hold it together as we walked down that long corridor. The walls were a pale government green, and there were arrows pointing the way painted on the wall, all bathed in sickly fluorescent light, and there were exposed pipes running overhead. I started to have visions that I was marching right into the gulag, and there was an inquisitor waiting for me. Instead, it was basically like going to the airport. A man whose nameplate identified him as Agent Barnes took our IDs again and punched them into a computer and asked us a few questions. Barnes raised an eyebrow when Blanchard stated his occupation as homeless, but both Morley and I had given our own occupations as unemployed. The screening agent had a sad look at that. He was a comfortable, pudgy man, and I suppose most of the people he screened were fairly well off. It seemed like we kind of ruined his day. One by one, we went through the new screening machines, standing in a plexiglass cylinder with our arm raised as detectors spun around us. They had Captain Morley in first, 
and I watched the screening agent like a hawk as he peered at the screen. He squinted at it and tilted his head, and then he picked up the phone. My heart stopped. This was it. Hey, Mr. Bradley, could you come in here for a sec? I looked up at the corridor, wondering if I could make it past the two guards. Impossible. I just had to wait and concentrate on not pissing myself. After an impossibly long time, Mr. Bradley appeared. He was clearly the supervisor. I thought we might have had it. Take a look at this, Barnes said, pointing at the screen. Captain Morley had stepped out of the machine, and all three of us were looking at each other. Blanchard and Morley seemed more annoyed than worried, but I was terrified. How could they be so calm? Do you not check your email? Bradley asked. His eyes narrowed with annoyance. I, I just haven't seen anything like that before, Barnes said, getting defensive. NPA prosthetics. All three of these gentlemen are Purple Heart veterans. Come on, Barnes. You're supposed to know this shit. He's here to receive the Medal of Honor, for Christ's sake. I'm very sorry, Captain. The supervisor held up a palm apologetically. No problem. Just doing his job. I don't mind, Captain Morley said. And Barnes gave him a relieved look. They screened Blanchard right after, but it was clear they were only doing it out of routine, and they barely looked at the screen. Then it was my turn, and I held my arms up, trying not to shake. I stepped out of the machine, and Agent Brad was looking at me. Did they know? That's some heart rate, sir, he said, and my guts felt all twisted. I must look suspicious as hell. I was, uh... I got into a firefight near one of those things once. Sorry. It's a hard memory to shake, I lied. I understand, sir. Enjoy the ceremony and congratulations, Captain Morley, Agent Bradley said. Don't forget your wallets. We reclaimed our wallets and our keys and were led to another checkpoint where two more guards waited with machine guns. A young woman in a smart business suit introduced herself and I forgot her name instantly afterward. She was meant to be our handler. She mainly chatted with Captain Morley about how the ceremony would go, where he would stand, and what would be said. We were led along a series of corridors for some time, going through three separate checkpoints. Finally, we emerged, and it dawned on me that we were in the White House. Everything was expensive and lush. Gold-framed paintings, thick red carpets, hardwood furniture, people everywhere bustling around. I was surprised. I expected the ceremony to take place in some nameless federal building. We were hustled into the empty room where the ceremony would take place in less than an hour. She ran through the blocking with Captain Morley, and my mind was whirling. I wondered if I would have a chance. I wondered if I could go through with it. They gave us the seats towards the back. Blanchard and I sat wordlessly as we watched Captain Morley run through the steps of the ceremony. She had him repeat it twice until she was sure he had it. The whole thing was done with a kind of brisk efficiency that said she'd done this all many times. I guess she'd had a lot of practice since the war started. When it was all through, there was nothing else to do but watch the clock wind down. The woman tried to make small talk with Captain Morley, but it was like talking to a brick wall. She looked at the two of us and decided not even to try, and then she went to checking her phone. One last joke from the man upstairs. My final hour on Earth would be spent hurrying up to wait. At last, people began to file in. Big names, important people, some admiral I didn't recognize, some head of a department of our other, a sort of loose collection of people that made me suspect that they'd been press-ganged to be here. A few members of the party news service arrived and began to set up their equipment. Once, there would have been a whole gaggle of networks there, and now there was just the one. I wanted to believe that it was a live feed, 
so my final moments would be broadcast to every computer in the country as a ball of righteous fire. But probably there would be a time delay, and some party censor ready to cut to commercial at a moment's notice. But I wanted to believe. Something was wrong with the heat, and it was stifling in the small room. No one spoke to us. Every single military person there looked at us, saw our rank, and decided not to bother. Blanchard and I sat there as silent as statues as the room filled up with bustling, chatty people. Many of them went up to greet Morley, shake his hand, and clap him on the back, but they all left uncomfortable. He responded to them in short, terse statements. There was no getting a smile out of him, no sense their words had any impact. They might as well have been talking to a potted plant. It had gotten even warmer in the room, with so many people crammed into the small space, and I had begun to sweat in the uncomfortable uniform. Finally, it was time for the ceremony. A hush fell over the crowd, and everyone settled into their chairs. Two members of the presidential guard came in and looked over the whole room. Everyone sat in utter silence as they checked around for anything surprising and scanned the crowd for anything out of place. I had to remember to breathe as they scrutinized me. I was a terrible secret agent. When they were satisfied, the president entered the room, and we all had to stand up for him. Seeing his cocksure stride, his wide, fake smile, I was suddenly sure that I could do this. I could vaporize that evil motherfucker. I could feel the certainty wash over me like cold water, despite the too warm room. I could do this. As he took the podium, I looked at him curiously. Something was off. For twenty minutes, he went on about what a hero Captain Blue Morley was, how he'd valiantly and intrepidly put the lives of the refugees before his own. He talked about how it reflected on Captain Morley's crew, on the whole Navy. He talked about his administration's dedication to taking care of injured veterans, and I had to cover up my laugh by pretending to cough. Then I noticed something. The president's mole was coming off. It was a small, noticeable mole on the left side of his jaw. One of those things that caricature artists love to exaggerate in the newspaper, but in person it's hardly noticeable except for right now, where it was hanging loosely from the side of his face, caught in a trickle of sweat. Unconsciously, he raised a hand to it and wiped the side of his face, and there was no more mole. My mouth fell open, and for a moment I thought I must be hallucinating that the heat had made me feverish, but the mole was gone. He wasn't the president. It was a body double, a very close double. He'd nailed everything, the voice, the look, even his walk, but it wasn't him. The imposter was through with his speech. He was putting the Medal of Honor over Morley's head and shaking his hand, and for a moment I held my breath. I wanted to cry out to Morley that it wasn't the real president, that it was a setup in case they'd rigged his arm too. But there was no explosion, nothing but the blank look on Blue's ruined face. It was more than just a thousand-yard stare. He was frozen in place, with sweat trickling down from his temples. He knew. I was certain he'd been rigged to explode just like me, but he'd spotted the fake in time. With immense relief, I realized that I'd just been a backup, and I wasn't going to die. We could leave here, and I could go back to my shitty life in New York and play piano in the subway to my heart's content. I didn't have to sacrifice myself. We'd failed, but it didn't matter. My heart was thundering, and I felt like I'd been delivered. The fake president was moving down the aisle, and people were parting to let him pass. I couldn't believe I'd gotten out of this. But I had forgotten Blanchard. The old master sergeant rose from his chair, and before the two presidential guardsmen stationed at the door could stop him, he tackled the fake president to the plush carpet. Instantly, both guards were on him, trying to rip him off. Blanchard threw back his head, and as we all stared in shock, 
Lex Talionis, Blanchard howled, and I could see his prosthetic eye begin to glow, bright orange-red, and the skin around his eye was as luminous as a bulb. You could see the dark shadow of his skull. And then all was white. Thanks for listening to The Right to Bear Arms. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out more about me or read some of my other books, please visit www.zackzyz.com. Zach Zawizy is a writer based in New York City. His books, including Survival Mode, Xan and Inc., The Master Arcanist, The Bishop's Daughter, and Hawks at the Diner, are available to download for free at his website, ZachZYZ.com, as is The Right to Bear Arms. If you enjoyed his writing, please consider supporting him at his Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash ZachZYZ. This episode of Kaleidocast Season 2 is brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, Penina Seidman, Christy Chadwick, and Charlie Zardos. Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. Degamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen, who's also our director, Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our story runner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. Additional audio engineering was provided by Atticus Ryan Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Daniel Stalter, Margot Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Cat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want 
but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors.